Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Today, we have something a little different. We're bringing you part one of a two-part podcast series discussing chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. In today's podcast, a panel of experts discusses the burden of COPD, available treatments, and more. Welcome to the American Journal of Managed Care's COPD Stakeholder Summit podcast. I'm your host today, Dr. Neil Minkoff, the Chief Medical Officer of COAS Healthcare. AJMC is dedicated to disseminating clinical information to managed care physicians, clinical decision makers, and other healthcare professionals to support improved patient care. AJMC's aim is to stimulate scientific communication in our ever-evolving managed care field. In this two-part podcast series, we discussed COPD. COPD is still a significant clinical and economic burden in the U.S., and exacerbations account for the greatest proportion of healthcare costs in COPD. Pharmacological therapies can reduce the risk and severity of exacerbations and reduce symptoms. However, appropriate therapy and device selection are necessary to ensure that the disease is adequately controlled. Maximal inspiratory flow rate, as measured by PIF, is a main contributing factor to inhaler use and should be evaluated as part of an individualized treatment approach. Healthcare decision-maker-focused education on an individualized approach to COPD management including PIF assessment, is needed. Today, we're going to highlight discussion with a panel of experts in COPD, including Dr. Bradley Drummond, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Disease at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. Mr. Michael Hess, Respiratory Therapist and Chronic Lung Disease Coordinator at the Western Michigan University School of Medicine. Dr. Maria Lopes, who is the former Chief Medical Officer of Magellan RX and Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield, and Dr. Donald Mahler, an Emeritus Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonology at the School of Medicine at Dartmouth University. The topics of conversation for today's podcast include an overview of existing treatment options, practical considerations for drug and device selection, the role of peak inspiratory flow, PIF, to evaluate treatments and recent guideline recommendations. In our first clip, Dr. Drummond and Dr. Mahler outline the considerable clinical and economic burdens of COPD from both chronic symptoms and acute exacerbations and outline some factors that can influence this burden. I think we really can't uh, misunderestimate the burden of COPD in the United States. So you know, it's estimated that 16 million U.S. adults have COPD, and likely that's an underestimate given the underdiagnosis of COPD uh, as it requires spirometry testing. So potentially upwards of 24 million individuals in the United States um, have COPD. It's the fourth leading cause of death in the U.S. And just to put a, a face to that, that's the equivalent of one Airbus A380 crashing every single day in the United States. So it's an important disease that, uh, to, to focus on. It's estimated that there's about $5 billion in annualized medical expenditures related to COPD in the U.S. Um, each year. And those um, who have COPD have about two times the healthcare cost of those without COPD. And 
So when we think about what drives this healthcare utilization, well, really there's two components to the COPD disease. The first is the burden of respiratory symptoms. And the second is the, what we call the acute exacerbation of COPD. So let's talk about the symptoms first. So patients with COPD experience regular shortness of breath, cough, phlegm, wheezing, and this can impact their daily life, their work productivity. Um, it leads to frequent uh, outpatient healthcare encounters and, and drives the need for additional medical inhaled therapies. And also it can impact other comorbidities like depression, cardiovascular disease and the like. And so this symptom burden is really an important driver of the clinical burden of COPD. And then uh, related to that are what we call these acute exacerbations of COPD. So in COPD, there's normal day-to-day -day fluctuations of respiratory symptoms, but there's these uh, episodes which are acute sudden worsening called exacerbations. And this may be worsening of cough or shortness of breath or wheeze. It may be driven by triggers such as viral infections or for unknown triggers. And this often leads to escalation of care with antibiotics and steroids. Um, these can occur in the outpatient setting, require emergency room evaluation, or even hospitalization. And, and exacerbations matter. Um, you know, an individual who's hospitalized with an exacerbation has a 25% chance of being dead in the next year. And those who require additional, uh, what we call non-invasive ventilation, so a mask to help uh, improve their airflow, uh, 40% of those could be dead in a year. So this is a substantial um, signal of disease morbidity in COPD, and it's associated with significant healthcare cost. And, you know, so I think that when we think about these factors, symptoms, exacerbations, and impact on comorbidities, these really help drive our understanding of the clinical burden of COPD in the United States. Uh, certainly, uh, Brad mentioned uh, symptoms, mainly shortness of breath is the key one, and exacerbations, which we discussed briefly. I guess I would add two more outcomes, and one is disease progression. Uh, can we somehow impact things from getting worse, particularly as measured by lung function. And then the fourth outcome that is reasonable to consider is mortality. And we do have some interventions, maybe we can talk about them later, that can impact mortality in, in patients with COPD. So as far as factors that can alter these outcomes, obviously number one is smoking cessation. Uh, we, we, that, that leads the list in treatment options for uh, all the guidelines, including the, uh, the gold document. And we have evidence that smoking cessation uh, delays progression of disease, improves symptoms, reduces the risk of exacerbations, and after a decade can even improve mortality. Uh, other things, uh, lifestyle, including are people active? Do they exercise? Uh, do they have an appropriate diet? Do they maintain a, a normal body weight? These are, these are important, simple things that apply to all of us also apply to those with COPD. And then I guess my last comment would be about medications. And I know we'll talk more about inhaler medications later, but uh, over the past, say, 10, 15 years, uh, we have better and more effective medications. The, the challenge is to make sure people are using them correctly. Next, Dr. Mahler introduces peak inspiratory flow, or PIF, as an assessment tool for appropriate use of dry powder inhaler. Peak inspiratory flow is the maximal flow generated during inspiration and is applicable to patients that are using dry powder inhalers. And, and very briefly, to, to get the powder out of the device into the lungs, the patient has to generate turbulent energy 
within the dry powder inhaler. And turbulent energy is dependent on two main factors. One is the resistance of the dry powder inhaler. And the second is the inspiratory flow that the person generates. So we can measure peak inspiratory flow with uh, commercially available flow meters. And that is one parameter that can affect the efficacy of, of dry powder inhaler medications. Dr. Drummond and Dr. Lopes discuss the significance here of appropriate drug and device selection on healthcare utilization in COPD, and Mr. Hess discusses methods for improvement for adherence. A substantial driver of healthcare utilization is related to inadequate disease control, and specifically <clears throat> the COPD exacerbations. Um, exacerbations are associated with increased cost, ER visits, hospitalizations, and the need for increased COPD therapies, which can have their own short and long-term side effects. And as Dr. Mahler mentioned, um, the, the other factor here is that exacerbations can lead to declines in lung function, which can lead to more exacerbations, which sort of begins this COPD spiral, if you will, um, where these patients are stuck in this circle. Um, we know that inhaled therapies, when prescribed and used appropriately, can reduce exacerbations. We have large clinical trials going all the way back to 2007 and most recently 2018, 2020, that have shown that, that appropriate inhaled therapies can uh, reduce the time to next exacerbation, um, potentially reduce mortality. Um, but the reality is these devices only work, one, if they're prescribed, and two, if they're used properly. And the first issue about prescription is that, you know, there is an underdiagnosis of COPD. Smokers with respiratory symptoms are told they have bronchitis or they're just out of shape or getting old. And maybe they're told it's their heart issues. And, you know, they never get any spirometry testing to confirm the diagnosis of COPD and ultimately to start the therapies. And so that's the first piece of the puzzle in my mind. The second piece of the puzzle really happens to, to deal with the complexity of the devices. The devices come in many forms, have different techniques to ensure proper drug delivery. And critical errors, those that compromise drug delivery, can occur as much as nearly 50% of inhalation assessments in some studies. And these can include things like not inhaling through the device or blowing on a device that has a powder um, that's, that's uh, ready to be inhaled, um, insufficient inhalation duration or force, such as peak inspiratory flow, um, not, not inserting the capsule into the device or not having synchrony between the hand actuation and the inhalation. And so these critical errors um, related to the device or the lack of sufficient device prescription can um, certainly impact our healthcare utilization in COPD. Dr. Lopes, that also has been a part of the work you've done around population health. Absolutely. So couldn't agree more. And, you know, it always starts the best drug in the world, unless it's adhered to and taken properly is not going to work. And so uh, the issue of incorrect inhalation technique and um, how do we capture this information, right? So this is an area of interest now with uh, some digital devices and solutions uh, that can help enhance what we actually know about uh, the patient and lead to hopefully better, more targeted education, more timely education to correct for uh, some of these critical errors um, that may lead to hospitalizations. Um, we know that uh, incorrect inhalation techniques are associated with um, as much as a 50% uh, increased risk of hospitalizations, ER, oral corticosteroids, as Dr. Uh, Drummond mentioned. So how do we identify these? How do we correct for them? And these also become critically important for clinicians, right? So at the time of an office visit to be able to review somebody's adherence patterns, medications, what have they been on? What have they missed? 
Uh, and also to rap rapidly identify, do you have an adherence problem, a technique issue, or an efficacy issue to be able to escalate treatments appropriately and, and overcome some of the clinical inertia, as Dr. Uh, Drummond is mentioning. So all critically important, I think, to enhance um, not only patient engagement, but clinician engagement and the proper treatment of, of patients with COPD. I want to highlight that um, the rate of these critical errors, as Dr. Dr. Drummond had mentioned in, in his piece, they've stayed essentially the same for about 40 years. There have been a couple of meta-analyses that have come out and it tells us that we have not done a great job of doing this education. Uh, previously. So now we do have some new tools that are coming out, the smart inhalers. We have some other um, devices that we can use to monitor a meter dose inhaler technique uh, and the inspiratory flow meters that, that uh, Dr. Mahler has mentioned. Um, we can look at very closely how, pe how people are interacting with their devices. Um, and that really does a great job with helping people adhere to their medications as well. You know, most people aren't going to do something if they don't feel it works. Uh, but if we can demonstrate to them why perhaps it's not working or identify gaps in our instruction, then we can do, uh, we can give them the tools they need to be successful. Dr. Mahler gives an overview of treatment approaches for COPD. There are two major classes of medications. One are called bronchodilators and the other inhaled corticosteroids. So within the bronchodilator class, we have two distinct medications. One class or group is called beta agonists. The other is called muscarinic antagonists. And those are, reflect the mechanisms of action whereby each of these classes uh, relax bronchial smooth muscle to open up the airways, dilate the airways, uh, make it easier to breathe, uh, and possibly uh, help people cough out uh, mucus or phlegm. Uh, inhaled cortical steroids are the other category. And these days we can prescribe these as individual medications or more frequently uh, we use combination therapies with either two or three uh, in a single inhaler. So I think you ask about the starting point. Where, where do we start with medications? And just to, just to keep it simple, for, for I would say 90% of our patients with COPD, we typically prescribe a maintenance medication, maintenance inhaler, and, and that would be taken either two or either once or twice a day because these are long acting medications. And then we should also prescribe a rescue inhaler that can be used as needed, either when people are having difficulty breathing or they could use it before they're going to do an activity that might provoke or bring on shortness of breath. So that's a, a brief summary of, I think, the overall approach that we have available. Are there any concerns about safety in any of those drugs? Well, with any medication, we have to balance the benefit and possible side effects or risks with the medication. Uh, yes, there are some uh, potentially uh, serious side effects from medicines, if used in appropriate dose, if used in appropriate frequency, they're typically fairly minimal. Dr. Mahler here provides a brief overview of the gold recommendations for treatment selection and patient assessment. The basic paradigm is once COPD is diagnosed, then it's categorized into one of four different quadrants or, or groups, and they're labeled A, B, C, D. And 
the groups A and B have a reduced risk of an exacerbation based on past history of exacerbations. And the groups B and D represent increased symptoms, shortness of breath, and or other respiratory symptoms. So without going into more detail, I think uh, that summarizes the, uh, the groupings. <clears throat> and then as, as Brad mentioned, uh, medication and delivery system are both equally important. Uh, the gold document focuses more on medications and less on delivery systems. And I think that's in part because there are far more studies that have looked at molecules and far less that have looked at inhaler selection. And then the actual gold recommended management cycle is to first, when you inter, uh, interact with a patient, review his or her status, how are they doing? And then you assess inhaler technique, adherence to medication. And then if they're doing well, you continue what's happening. If they're not doing well, then you might adjust either the molecule or the delivery system or both. And it's a continuous cycle of review, assess and adjust at each visit. So that, that kind of summarizes uh, the approach. If people aren't doing well, you might escalate or increase use of uh, one of the medications, may revise the or change the delivery system. And if they're doing very well, there is an option for de-escalating therapy, which mainly relates to consideration of withdrawal of inhaled corticosteroids. In this next clip, Dr. Drummond and Mr. Hess go over the process of device selection to optimize patient outcome. You know, the unique aspect of COPD is that uh, unlike a pill, you're prescribing both a molecule or molecules, that's the medicine you're trying to deliver to the lung, as well as the device. And so you almost have to disassociate these two when you consider how you're going to prescribe something for a patient. And I do think that the delivery device is as important as the molecule or molecules that you're trying to deliver to the lungs. And so we have really four fundamental options with how we can deliver medications to the lungs. One is the meter dose inhaler, which is basically pressurized gas to deliver molecules to the lungs. The second is dry powder inhalers, which the patient has to actually inhale a dry powder containing the molecule. The third is a soft mist inhaler, which delivers the molecules through a flow independent mist. And then finally, the nebulized therapies, which uses compressed air or oxygen to suspend liquid solutions into small aerosol droplets that are then inhaled. And when we start thinking about how we're going to prescribe these, uh, to these medicines to these patients, we again, we have to consider both the molecule or molecules, as Dr. Mahler outlined, as well as these different uh, factors related to how the different device characteristics. And this is where peak inspiratory flow does come in, because this is relevant to dry powder inhalers, as Dr. Mahler previously mentioned, because these are flow-dependent devices. So patients must generate sufficient inspiratory flow to disaggregate this powder to a small enough size to get it delivered to the distal parts of the lung. And the challenge is that how hard you have to inspire or how hard that flow has to be is different for each device because they have different resistances. And our work has actually shown that uh, anywhere around 40% of outpatients aren't able to generate sufficient peak inspiratory flow for the device that we're prescribing them. 
And a lot of work has gone into understanding, well, how can we identify the, or predict the peak inspiratory flow in these patients short of actually measuring it? And I have to say that I think the data supports that it's difficult to predict who this is. It's not simply a marker of their low lung function because that's a measure of an expiratory maneuver. And we're talking about an inspiratory effort. Um, so it doesn't seem to correlate consistently with, with low lung function. Um, other factors, things like shorter stature, uh, female sex seem to be associated with reduced peak inspiratory flow in cohort studies. But really the only way to know it, I think, frankly, is to measure it um, rather than sort of guess. Um, and peak inspiratory flow, I think, is important also because we're beginning to see that there may be associations with healthcare utilization. There have been uh, a couple uh, studies, one multi-center, one single center, that, see, that uh, at least the single center studies seem to support that individuals with reduced peak inspiratory flow near or at the time of discharge from a COPD exacerbation have a higher risk of being readmitted to the hospital. So whether this could actually be a predictor of not only informing how we select our therapies for patients, but also what their clinical course may be like, I think is uh, an area of interest for, for many of us. Individual inhalers does have what's thought to be at least an optimal or sufficient threshold for their inspiratory flow measurement. And so the, the general consensus is that if they're able to generate a number above that threshold, then likely they're able to deliver that drug to, uh, sufficiently down into their lungs versus individuals who um, are not able to generate that, that sufficient or, uh, or adequate uh, inspiratory flow. And so I think we, we can think about some binary areas where patients are either not able to do uh, sufficient flow or able to do a sufficient flow. And we can incorporate that into our characterization of their ability to use that inhaler. Each of these devices has a particular set of pros and cons, and it's important to match the patient's preferences on their abilities with, with each individual device. For example, the traditional meter dose inhaler, probably what most people think of when you hear the word inhaler, uh, works very well. It's very portable. It doesn't require any, any electricity to use, but it does require a fair bit of, of hand breath coordination. You have to be able to inhale at, a, at a, the appropriate rate at the appropriate time. Um, when we move on to dry powder inhalers, they take that coordination uh, requirement out. But as we've been talking about, you have to have a certain amount of inspiratory flow in order to disaggregate that powder and get it to where it's going to be effective. Uh, the slow mist inhalers also work very well. Um, they don't require as much coordination. I would argue they still require some because uh, if you don't inhale at the right time, you may hit uh, the back of your throat and trigger a cough and that sort of thing. Um, and they can be a little bit more complex to put together. Um, and then we also have nebulizers, which um, are arguably the, the traditional standard, particularly for folks who uh, um, are having an exacerbation or something like that. They don't require any special inspiratory technique, um, no particular flow, no particular coordination, but they take longer. And so that can be a big uh, uh, factor when somebody is doing their medications at home. They take longer, they require a little bit more maintenance to the equipment, um, and they generally require a, a plug. So they're not... Uh, not uh, as portable as some of the other handheld inhaler options. That's all we have for today. Thank you for listening to the COPD Stakeholder Summit podcast. Please tune in to the next podcast in this series, where we will discuss individualized COPD management and the process of evaluating treatment efficacy. For more updates to manage care, be sure to visit www.ajmc.com and sign up for our e-newsletter. AJMC is also on social media. On Twitter, follow us at, at AJMC underscore journal. On Facebook, like us at 
the American Journal of Managed Care, and follow the AJMC page on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.